This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. I could hear her praising my daughter for doing certain things. And I'm like, wow, I already missed nine months with her in, in utero. And I missed 11 months of her life while she was in an orphanage. And I can't, I can't miss another moment. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. I'm talking today with writer and storyteller Kim Frank, a woman who will tell you by her own admission that she's constantly terrified of just about everything and yet has had a life of grand adventures ranging from the Jersey Shore to the mountains of Idaho and the foothills of the Himalayas in the Nepal, India region. This is a woman who never takes the easy road. If she's going to ski, she's going to telemark ski, not just glide downhill. If she's going to scuba dive, it's not just going to be on calm, pretty coral reefs. It's going to be with great white sharks, or maybe even free diving instead of using any breathing assist at all. Coming to me from the beautiful Sun Valley in Idaho, join me now as we talk and explore the world with Kim Frank. Well, I'm delighted to actually finally be online with you and have this lovely long conversation because, uh, you know, when we're together with our diving group off on our sea space trips, we get snippets and bits around the bar that usually quickly devolve into some other diving story. <laughs> it's true. It's true. You, it leaves you mostly, it leaves me longing for more time. So I'm deeply grateful for this. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, you have such a wondrously <laughs> varied path through life, and there's so many things you've done and ways you've thought about them. And processes and insights that spurred you to, to these. People often tell me I have this completely unique nonlinear career and you, dear girl, are right up there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> Every single sense of the word. So you know, I was reading something today. A friend sent me a manuscript for a children's book that she's written. Lovely, lovely little piece. I haven't finished it yet, but her opening setup is speaking to the young reader. And it really kind of fascinated me. She, talking to a young person, comments on or tells them the different ways their parent will be watching them as they're young and what they will, be, what their parents will be learning from what they're seeing. And in particular, that your parents will be watching how you play. 
you know, if you're if you're always dancing when there's not even music in the air, you know, there's <laughs> there's there's drama and movement and music within you. And if you're if you're always wanting to be outside and tinkering with things and taking things apart, you know, there's probably a bent towards science and technology and engineering. Interestingly, she's writing this mainly oriented towards young girls because the feature character of the book is the woman who came from you know, sort of a nondescript background in Kentucky and became the first female governor of Kentucky. So I want to try that ploy with you and say, <laughs> take, take me back to the young Kim Frank growing outside in or around Philadelphia, if I remember. Yes, I grew up actually, my first mostly six years were spent living in the back office apartment of my grandparents' motel on the Jersey Shore, where <laughs> my parents had just been hired, <laughs> loose term there, <laughs> hired as the manager of the motel. So we, you know, Ocean City, New Jersey was at that time when I was growing up a pretty desolate place when it wasn't the summer. And in the summer, it kind of, you know, exploded into a, a brilliant family tourist area with boardwalk and amusement park rides and everything. So my early years were quite fascinating, actually living in this environment. And I was a very curious child and I was constantly asking why and what and why and what. And I was also a very talkative child. <laughs> no surprise. <laughs> um, I spent a lot of time with imaginary play and, you know, playing with make-believe people and animals. And and I used to write poems. Were you an only child? Did you have siblings? I wasn't. I had a sibling when I was three and a half. Okay. So my sister came at three and a half. So there was still a, a big enough age difference before she was really playable, like before <laughs> I could really play with her. But one of the things I was fascinated with when I was young was I read a lot and somehow I must have watched TV once in a while because there were two things that really kind of captured my imagination and gave me this kind of sense of envy as a young child. One was there was this, I always loved books about little kids who happened to end up living on their own. And these, like there was one story of a little girl who found her way into the woods and found this cottage and she broke into the cottage and had this fanciful little life in the short term with, you know, the animals and living in the woods. And, and then a prince came and found her and adopted her and took her home. And that was the part of the story that was not nearly as appealing to me <laughs> when she found herself alone in the woods in this little cabin. And the other thing I used to do is I used to play, you, you probably remember Marlo Thomas's That Girl. Oh, Yes. Well, I wanted to be that girl. <laughs> yeah. Even though now when I see her, I think, oh my gosh, why did they make her so like ditzy and silly? And but I used to take this little palm tree thing that we had, this plastic thing we had, and I used to pretend it was my parasol and I was walking in the rain and getting to my New York City apartment by my, that I lived in by myself and I think I was six when I was playing that game. <laughs> so, so it was her independence. And yes. her, I mean, she was played as a sort of ditzy character, but yeah. she, she had a significant job. I mean, she was... For the time, it was about as bravely independent as that as TV got. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she was, there was all that, but in my fantasy, I, it wasn't that I had a boyfriend or anything. I just had that umbrella and was walking and twirling it in the rain and yeah, you going were in, to my private apartment. <laughs> in command of your life. Exactly. Did you live all year round on the Jersey Shore those first yes. six years? So you had the lonely summer, the lonely winter times when there's almost no one there. Very desolate. And we actually would have people come and stay there. And oftentimes in those early years, they were a um, little unsavory, the characters that were staying there. And my parents were very, very young. They had me when they were 20. So, you know, we were kind of all naive to the world. So it was, it was quite an adventure and a strange place to spend your formative years, frankly. Yeah. So did that end when you were reaching school age? Yes, I remember asking every day we'd come home from I'd come home from school and ask my parents, did we get the mortgage? Did we get the mortgage? And I didn't know what that was, except it meant freedom for my family, that we would be out from under my grandparents kind of rule and we would have our own house. And and we did actually move to a house that my parents actually paid somebody to build and in their naivete the guy asked for all the money up front my parents oh gave them all the money up front <laughs> turned out you know ocean city's very close to atlantic city turns out he was running from the mafia and he, <laughs> you know i've never written about this oddly i don't know why but i mean it's, it's truth is stranger than fiction so <laughs> i i sometimes can't even approach it but he ran away with all my parents saved money after all that time they finally were able to build a house and now he ran away so our our little family of four went through this huge trauma of now what and my father got his builder's license and pulled together his brother and and my family's friends and they built the house and then Wow. We moved in. That, was that also in Ocean City or? It was off the island, which is its own strange oh, it, place. So the first yeah. night, the builders that were helping left, the carpet guys left the door open. And sadly, all the mosquitoes, because there's lots of mosquitoes off the island, came in. And our first night in our new house was spent with like, oh, total <laughs> mosquito. But we that couldn't dampen our spirits, so. So you started school from the new house then? Yes, I was in school, you know, younger, but kindergarten and, you know, preschool stuff. But I was in third, actually, I was in third grade when oh, I was okay. starting third grade. Okay. In the boonies. And were you, <laughs> were you a schoolish kid or were you a... <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. Oh, gosh. I was a dreamer. I am still a dreamer. <laughs> I was a dreamer. I was, and actually, interestingly, it took a long time for me to realize that I have, I'm actually quite an intelligent human being, but I did not, I was not identified that way when I was growing up. And I, I really had a, for a lot of my adult life, actually, I felt like I was constantly trying to prove to myself that that I actually am pretty intelligent and that the persona that I was, you know, during my, during my youth was, I kind of was that Marlo Thomas girl in lots of ways, a little, a little ditzy, a little silly, a lot distracted. And I mean, I got good grades, but it wasn't until I was older and I started planning seriously to go to graduate school and, and then go to another graduate school that I really embraced academics at a high level. 
So other than Marlo Thomas's New York, do you have a sense of how the world looked to you when you were young? Was it, I mean, I, I remember realizing very early on, I liked to be out inquiring, outside inquiring, touching, exploring things. I had no idea, you know, what that meant my life would become, but but, you know, on television, you could see characters that were doing similar things. And I guess that was kind of my Marlo Thomas inspiration. There are people that, that live lives like this. Definitely. And, you know, for a very long time, I was sheltered. I believed for a very long time that, and I didn't like what I saw, what I was exposed to. I was exposed to physical labor was how you that was how you worked. And if you were like a good worker, it was because you were physically working. I didn't actually realize that there were all these other kind of professions and jobs and people that were doing things that were creative and outside of the box. And it took many, many years until I saw that. And legitimate. Right. So I had a lot of shame about like, who am I? Because I'm not, I'm lazy. I'm not, I don't really want to you know, pick weeds and dig in the dirt. And I don't really like folding towels and laundry. And I mean, not that anyone really likes that, but, <laughs> but I mean, I just didn't even know what was out there, but I did actually go to summer camp and I went to summer camp um, up in the Adirondacks. My dad had gone to summer camp when he was little. It's kind of this Eastern tradition. And I, Interestingly, I ended up going to a Jewish summer camp, which we were not Jewish, but I loved my summer camp and it opened up everything for me. I mean, I, the wilderness and my own capability in terms of physical, you know, I was a gawky kid. I was I was in special gym in second grade. And now I identify as athletic. So it was the deep shame of myself that I was, you know, this kind of kid that couldn't do stuff. I, I, did, I didn't know there was such a thing as special gym. I didn't either. I mean, sometimes I think, did I make that up? But no, I remember being pulled out of class and we would have to like, it was for kids who just didn't quite have the hand coordination. And, you know, I went on to be a champion local tennis player. And I learned that from my camp. I was in our, I was super into archery. That was something that I found was, I still love archery. I think it's, there's something really exciting about the mystery of being an archer as a female, yeah. especially. <laughs> Well, and to make all of those pieces come together with any precision, right? The tension and the string and the aim. And Definitely. Yeah, that's, that's kind of cool. I, I had I had an archery phase as well. Did you? <laughs> I, I did. <laughs> and then you get to a point where you pull it back and you're like, is it going to snap on my face? Is it going to snap on my face? <laughs> yeah, no, my stupid moment in archery was stupider than that. I was with one little neighborhood pal. We had a big open area on the campus of a community college nearby and they had stacked hay bales up and you could go shoot into the hay bales. Oh, yeah. I think I think they actually had an archery club. We would just go, you know go over after hours. But as you know little kids aged nine-ish or something will do, we started thinking about other things that'd be interesting to watch an arrow do. And so we, oh, God. we shot an arrow straight up in the air and we, we spent <laughs> half of the time being dazzled about how far up it was going. And then, then the light bulb went on and we realized now we can't <laughs> see it. We have no idea where it's coming down and we ran for the hills. <laughs> 
not oh my, my not my finest moment. <laughs> I, at least it didn't come down in your eye. Exactly. Which, if, if I was your mother, I'd be saying, that's going to come down in your yeah. eye. <laughs> or my mother. We went off on these adventures. That's the thought that was going through my mind, actually. Yeah. But we went off on these adventures on our own. So there wasn't a parent there to. Yes. No, those were the days, weren't there? I was telling my daughter the other day that, well, because <laughs> I used to go out when once we moved off the island, I used to go out with a friend and we would just explore the dirt. And the there was this one area that I was absolutely fascinated by. It had trenches in it. And we used to, and like old clothes i mean probably a serial killer lived in there who knows but at the time you know we just thought it was the most mis- i just felt like what was the story of the people who lived here what is this you know broken down things and we used to explore the trenches all the time one time i was out exploring in the fields in the woods and my parents i had a curfew you know it was like four o'clock i had to be home and i noticed that i totally lost track of time so i i had had i had a new watch so I set the watch back an hour. <laughs> Clever. <laughs> and when I came home, I said, what? Oh, I didn't know I'm an hour late. My watch says it's right on time. <laughs> and I'm sure my parents were like, yeah, we don't believe you for me. Yeah, we've, <laughs> seen, we've seen this trick before. So did what clicked, did school click with you or was it everything in your imaginative life outside of school? Because you, you end up on a track towards Ivy League University and heading into social work. How did all of that emerge? I didn't know what I wanted to do. But one, one day when I was in seventh grade, they had these IRA cards or something. We used to pull these cards out and some of them talked about different careers. And I remember pulling one out and reading it was psychologist and reading like what that person does and it was like this light bulb went off that what working with people is a is a job (laughs) i could talk to people and help them with their problems as a job it kind of set me on this course of being intrigued with human interaction as because it was something I'm, I'm a very empathic person I absorb all kinds of everything and I really like I've always been the oldest cousin that helps all my cousins and then I you know I I taught swimming lessons with little kids and I helped them get over their fear of the water and so what, by the time I got to college I thought well maybe I want to do something like that but I couldn't quite find my niche and I graduated from college and I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. And my first, and I found myself looking at preschool jobs in the newspaper and because it just felt like a fit, even though I was a history and politics major in college. <laughs> so I got a job teaching preschool and it was actually daycare, childcare. And it was an eye opener because what I saw right away was that parents were getting really stressed out having to hold on to their jobs place their children in these childcare settings early in the morning. They were there. Some infants were there as early as six. Parents picked them up as late as six. And I thought, something's broken. And I, I'm seeing it. And I, I could be someone that could help fix this. And so I, that set me on a track to figure out what do I need to know to fix it. And so I needed to go to graduate school. And I wanted to focus on policy and changing and early childhood education, but not 
not teaching early childhood education, but actually changing policy. So it set me off an entire course of my life where I went to graduate school to study that and then slowly kind of worked myself through a system to where I, I was a fellow in DC uh, working for the child, Department of Child Care, Health and Human Services, and then, and then went on to do advocacy and lobbying work all the way up until I was making an impact. I was actually doing it. And then I adopted my, my first daughter and found quickly that I couldn't change the world and, and be the mom she needed at the same time. So something had to give. You must have some highlights and lowlights. Anyone who's worked in the policy arena. <laughs> oh, God, uh, you well know. <laughs> most, so few people, most of us don't really understand. I, I remember at a relatively young age, I think it was somewhere in the course of the Nixon-Kennedy presidential campaign, my first moment of asking myself the question, I wonder how a country makes a decision. I mean, yeah, I could, I knew a bit about how I decided things. It wasn't, it was often very messy, but and you know, our family would talk as a family decisions where most decisions were family things. So I had, you know, a sense of there's some processes that a person or a family go through to come to a decision, even if it's just the, where are we going on vacation decision? Right, right. Uh, but you know, well, however old I would have been, 12 or 13, and you know these very dramatic debates and uh, the very charismatic young president and all of that sort of drew me in. And that's where my thought ended was, I wonder how a country does this. So what were your, your journey of learning how that happens? Tell me more about that. Is it on-the-job training? You learn it by doing? Were there particular mentors or battles or projects in grad school that let you really get your hands on the inner workings? Yeah, you know, there are these kind of pivotal moments. And for me, most of them are experiential, although some of them are also what I've read, reading something that like that just changes me immediately or affects me so deeply. I want to be like, so like in graduate school, I my second year, I was assigned, which was the perfect job for me, to Head Start. And I worked three days a week at Head Start in Philadelphia, in Center City, Philadelphia. Now, I have to tell you that I am a person who has a lot of fear. I'm always battling my fears to make myself better, to make the planet better, to whatever. I'm always having to face this kind of sometimes irrational fear. I almost didn't apply to University of Pennsylvania, even though they had the best program for what I wanted to do, because I was terrified of driving my car into Center City, Philadelphia and parking to go to the interview, not the interview, driving into the city. <laughs> so with that in mind, my job with, with Head Start was to go out to all the Head Start programs throughout center city in the 90s which philadelphia is in pretty grim shape in the 90s and i was earnest and i would take the bus you know to these neighborhoods that literally looked like they had been set on fire and in the middle of that was this absolute bloom of head start program and i would go you know i'd ride the bus and then pretty soon i was like the only person that looked like me. And I was dressed like an idiot. When I look back now, I'm, I'm dressed like some preppy little 
white girl weirdo. <laughs> but I was well received. People were very sweet to me and kind and, and understanding. And I developed, I, I learned, it was, I learned so much about community and what we think is community and what actually is community and how like what you see at face value and what you feel in terms of the beating heart of a community. And I, I remember one day I was standing on the bus stop in this burnout city and, you know, guys were coming by in their cars with big loud music blaring out. And I'm like sitting there in my little dress, like waiting for the bus. And this woman called out of her store and she's like, honey, do you want to use my phone? <laughs> I said, no, I'm fine. I'm just waiting for the bus. She said, probably not the best idea to stand there. <laughs> Did you use her phone? <laughs> no, I just kept on fine. Thank you. Waiting for the bus. You know, it was fine. So I think, you know, those kind of palpable moments where I really realized like who I am in the world and who I'm not in the world and where there's this amazing energy and all these things would kind of fuel me, fuel the fire to like do something more. One of the most profound books that kind of lit me up in terms of what it takes to make change and David Halberstam's The Children about the civil rights movement and some of the kind of young heroes and heroines of the civil rights movement. And he really did a deep dive into their stories. And when I started the policy change that I decided that, I mean, I worked, you know, this, I worked in the federal government for a year. Huh? That, I, I mean, I know policy change happens there, but not in the way that I <laughs> felt I needed to more quickly make something <laughs> happen. So I was working for Stand for Children, which was like, it felt, it was my my 60s moment, I guess. I was, you know, sleeping on floors and in people's homes and, and working with, with people who didn't have a voice and helping them have a voice and helping lead them to stand up and speak for themselves. And it, it was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen and watching that change take place in real time. So I, I'm not familiar with Stand With Children. Tell, tell us more about that. You know, it's been a long time since I've been involved with them because I took all that time off to be a full-time mom and then go back to school for writing, but, and they've evolved and changed, but they grew out of, an or, well, Marion Wright Edelman, who is, who founded the Children's Defense Fund, who was my hero, of course, she's a lot of people's hero. Yeah, <laughs> she is my hero. And when I won the fellowship and I was interviewed, they said, you know, the reporter said, what, what do you want? What are you hoping? And I'm like, I'm just hoping to meet Marion Wright Edelman. <laughs> well, her son founded Stand for Children, which essentially was an advocacy and lobbying group that used kind of organizing techniques, civil rights style organizing techniques to train local people who care about an issue to make change for children at the policy level. And when I came on board, we were just starting out. He was just starting out. And, you know, I live in Idaho and Idaho is a, is a tough, tough state to get progressive changed at the policy level. Um, he hired me without telling his board. And when his mother found out, she was horrified. Had, so you had you had moved to Idaho before you went? Yes, okay. I had moved to Idaho. I moved, I went to DC and then I came back. I had, that was part of the deal. And I was getting married and I couldn't take any of the jobs offered to me because I had a commitment 
of marriage in Idaho. <laughs> so I returned to Idaho and met Jonah, who was doing a keynote speech there. And I went up and begged him to do something with me, maybe. And so he ended up hiring me, actually, and starting having me start stand in Idaho. And his mother was so angry at him because she said, we can never move in Idaho. And I proved her wrong, which I'm happy to report. So connect the dots for me. You finish your master's in Philly. <laughs> you do Head Start during grad school. You finish your master's in Philly. Wait, I, I'm stuck between, I'm, I'm not clear how Philly becomes Idaho and when. <laughs> right. Well, this is where dramatic landscapes and, and following decisions that are like, you know, most people would say, I finished graduate school. I have these opportunities for careers. And I kind of was thinking, oh, well, and I did in Philadelphia, but I didn't really want to live in Philadelphia. I wanted to live somewhere more beautiful and exciting than that. Where did that instinct come from? Had you traveled a lot? No, actually, I hadn't traveled. I hadn't traveled a lot yet, but other than like Disney World and Rochester, New York. But I grew up in a place where on Sunday in the summer, <laughs> on Sunday in the summers, the kids that had come to the motels that I met, that I'd play with all week, they would leave and I got to stay. And even though we didn't really have the money to be like buying us amusement park rides and cotton candy all week, I still had the ocean literally steps from my feet. And there was this moment always when they would say goodbye longingly, looking at like how lucky I was to live in that place. And I think that it kind of entrenched in me this this desire to kind of always live in a special place and that that, that feel, felt so amazing. And it doesn't cost money. I mean, now it does, but a beach tag to go to the beach, you know, you can swim in the ocean for free and it's magnificent. And so I thought if I could just always try and live somewhere that is filled with natural wonder, I can have access to that no matter what. So my goal kind of became, how can I make change that I want to make and have the career that I envision for myself and do it while I live somewhere beautiful? So why didn't you end up at another seaside town? Well, I started off to Seattle, but a boy interfered. I met... <laughs> Funny and how that remember, happens. the Marlo Thomas in me was <laughs> So I drove out to Idaho with my sister to Sun Valley because she was going to move here for a year. It was just a road trip. I was still in graduate school. I met my future husband who ended up being my boyfriend for seven years. And it wasn't until I, I won the internship, the fellowship, because finally after seven years, I thought, I better do something. This is not happening. So... <laughs> I did. I applied for the fellowship and won it. And then he, he proposed. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I ended up being landlocked, something I never, ever thought I would be in. And I vowed, but if you've been to Sun Valley, Idaho, you, you would not feel sorry for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I have felt that tug of place in, you know, in a number of places. I've lived in Norway and Nova Scotia and oh. did a lot of work in Alaska and you know, I've been that other kid and I've I've questioned myself deeply sometimes about now what is it about what you need or what's important that you you feel something special here that really feeds you 
why are you not just staying here and letting work become whatever it can become so that you can stay here? And I don't have a cogent answer to that other than somewhere deep inside. I just knew that's that's not the best right thing for me. Right. It seems like the type of work that you do and that you aspired to do probably at that time when you're making those decisions really wasn't possible to do anywhere other than where, especially during the time. I mean, when I first moved to this town, there was no internet. I could not now stay here without internet and work. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, when we were young and going through our career decisions, there wasn't a virtual option, especially for you, Kathy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I I think for me, the part of the curiosity always was, it was a curiosity about how how far can I go? I kind of want to keep finding, <laughs> yeah, and I don't even mean that physically so much as- yeah, You went pretty you know, far, farther than yeah. all of us. <laughs> it's kind of like if you, you know, if you ran a lap around a track in a certain amount of time, being curious about, I wonder if I can go even faster. It was not in any, you know, not to show or prove to anybody else, but just- oh, I get it. Yeah. I mean, I, one of the messages I recall my mother wiring into me at a young age, and I think probably every book she picked to read to me was probably part of this plot, <laughs> was to sort of first be sure you become fully you. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's so important. That curiosity about how do I know that's fully what I can do? And and then right. where can you do that from? Where can you continue to to live to that potential. But yeah, I still love all those places I go back every time I can. Yeah. But you're right, pre-internet also matters. And some of the particular things I was involved in were are very tied to place or to- Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And I think I, I absolutely feel in sync with you when you say with the driving force in your life is how far can you go? Because I feel- like the driving force in my life has absolutely been how far can I go? And then combined with that is actually has been because now my movement was restricted. So I had to stay in a certain spot. So then it became how far can I go in this place? So even if it was how far can I go in this beautiful place that I love so much and I want to stay now you know, I've, I've been through a divorce. I have children. I'm not moving. Even if I decided now, like I can work from anywhere, I'm going to go live in, you know, in Greece. <laughs> but, uh, that's not happening. And this is another reason why I'm so grateful that I live in a place I love so much because at a certain, sometimes in times of your life, you become immovable or moving isn't as easy, or you you move around, but it looks different, then you have to see how far you can go, but with a, t- with a tether of sorts. Yeah, well, there's I think there's an art form in recasting your understanding or your your operative definition of far. Yeah. And, you know, in a sense, that's what this podcast is about, right? It, yeah. It's continuing to explore, but it's without spaceships or air, even airline <laughs> tickets. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Which is very apt for what the year, I mean, we've all really what? redefined what that looks like. This yes. Year. We've had that opportunity to completely explore our minds, our souls, our backyards. Yep. Here we are. 
and one hopes find dimensions in them that were more fulfilling than we would have thought when we thought it took airline Definitely. tickets to be fulfilled. Definitely. Oh, boy, boy, is that true. So true. <laughs> so there you are in Idaho, and you've stepped out of a bunch of things at this point, away from the seashore and out of graduate school. And, and oh, my goodness, adopting. Yeah. Big. Talk about a big leap into all sorts of dimensions. How did... How did you come to that? Being a mom was something, I mean, I was a kid that played with dolls. I want, and I mothered, I mothered my cousins. I mothered my students. I felt like I was in training to be a mom much of my life. And so I was eager once I returned from DC, newly married to my boyfriend of eight years now, (laughs) (laughs) to have a family, to have children, you know, and I was 30 almost 34. I was 34 then. Yeah, I was 34. So we started trying and then I had always felt that I was meant to adopt and that I wouldn't have biological children. And so after about six months, I I said to my gynecologist, so it's not happening. I like, I knew it wasn't going to happen. And she's like, Kim, it's been six months. (laughs) People try a really long time. No, I'm telling you, it's not going to happen. So she said, why don't we test you? So she tested me and then I was fine. And she's like, okay, well, let's test your husband. And he had a fertility issue, lo and behold. So all of these years, so instantly we both kind of turned to each other and said, well, let's adopt. And thank God. I mean, thank God, because I know a lot of women who were quick to say, let's just adopt and had partners who weren't supportive of that. And so I was very grateful. And so we, at the time, we looked at different options and China had a, a, a solid program because one of the things I felt was, I, I don't think I can handle the emotional roller coaster of fertility drugs, or I don't think I can handle the emotional roller coaster of having a, a birth mother attached to me and then change her mind at the last minute. I, I just need some process that's going to be A to Z. And at the time, China's program was all above board and they had an extreme need for adoptive families. And so we, we did, it was, I'll tell you what, when you have a baby and you're just going to have a baby, like you have sex, you get pregnant there. Now you're growing, you know, (laughs) but when you want to adopt a baby, you have to do all kinds of things. It's a little more rigorous. (laughs) Yes. Every day you have to, and I became, you know, I don't do things in a, in small letters. So I was like, no, no, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) I, I was doing all the paperwork, like everything. And got it all dialed. They lost our dossier. So we had to start. Yeah. And that oh. was heartbreaking. And then SARS happened, which oh. put all the adoptions on hold. So it was quite a journey. It took a year and a half, almost two years, during which time I would say I'm pregnant with paperwork, but emotionally, <laughs> yeah. And it truly felt that way. And it's difficult because, you know, you're going through a time at my age where all my peers were pregnant, my family members were getting pregnant. And I didn't grieve that. I, I didn't care so much that I wasn't. I was thrilled to be adopting, but I missed this. I missed going to the grocery store and having people be like, oh, when are you do?" You yeah. know, that whole like love didn't happen <laughs> for me. <laughs> but 
yeah, so we adopted our first daughter and then we eventually adopted a, our second daughter from China, both. We went over both times. It was incredible journey. And when we got home, I realized very quickly that she really needed, you know, she'd been in an orphanage and I was really studying attachment and bonding and, and working very hard to provide her with what she needed. And I realized that my vision of carrying my daughter around to rallies and stuff on the Capitol steps and training people around the country with, with my child, you know, playing on the floor wasn't real. And I could hear there, we had a nanny that was downstairs while I'm up on conference calls. I could hear her praising my daughter for doing certain things. And I'm like, wow, I already missed nine months with her in, in utero. And I missed 11 months of her life while she was in an orphanage. And I can't, I can't miss another moment. So <laughs> I couldn't stay with my career because I just felt like it would be selfish. And also I wasn't able to do my career with the energy that I had. So I knew that in my particular marriage that I wasn't going to be, you know, there wasn't going to be shared dishwasher and share. Like Mr. I Mr. Mom, to, Mr. No, Mom was not who you married. I was going to be the full-time stay-at-home mom and the full-time high career. I had a very huge career that I worked a long time to build. So I left my career and I don't regret that for a moment. I did grieve it though for a long time because the identity completely shifted and I gave everything I had to to making sure that my child got what she needed and and to great end I must say <laughs> not that I have had that much to do with it but <laughs> it could have gone poorly I guess <laughs> Yeah, it's a very spectacular end, it should be said. Both <laughs> both of your girls are just Thank you. Fabulous, wonderful. So how old were your daughters when you decided they were kind of up <laughs> and running enough, enough that you uh, could get back in? <laughs> <laughs> well, I realized I realized that I'm a kind of person you know, they were actually they Goldie was in preschool. And uh, Wei was in kindergarten and first grade. And so they were both in a structured program. They both had the bonding and the attachment that they needed. I realized that I was ready to grow a new career and that I have always wanted to be a writer. I always wrote anyway on the side of everything I did. And, and because I enjoy so much like the human connection, I felt really drawn to both poetry, but also to creating characters that kind of helped me make sense of the world. What kind of things did you write along the side? Well, I journaled every day. So there's that. But And all my journals for decades talk about, when am I going to write the novel? When am I going to write the novel? <laughs> you know, like, but I realized I didn't really have the tools to write a novel. I had no craft knowledge whatsoever. And so, but I would write poetry. I wrote poetry for years, bad, bad poetry, because also I didn't <laughs> know that you had, that there's craft to even free form, free verse even has craft. <laughs> so that's, that, that phrase fascinates me. Tell me more about what is the craft that you learn in writing? What does, 
open that up for me. Yeah. So I wanted to be a writer for real, whatever that meant. And I felt that at that point, you know, I was almost four, I was 40 then, 41. And I knew that living in New York City and just organically meeting other writers and learning that way wasn't going to happen for me. So so I started taking classes actually online at first. And I took them from University of Iowa because they're like the best of the best. And so I was able to take online classes and and I was getting really good encouragement from the teachers I was working with. And But the illuminating and overwhelming thing was realizing that, oh, it's not just sit down and write something, that there's actually an intentional intentionality with things, even as small as, I mean, I think everyone realizes there's intentionality with grammatical things and, and transitions and spacing and white space and, and wide lens and, you know, zooming right in. But to even think about, for example, an unreliable narrator, oh, what's that? Well, if you're writing in first person and it's fiction, and actually it's fun to even do it in nonfiction, you're creating, you know, the whole world of an unreliable narrator and you can like create it to the degree, you know, there's all this, and that's just like one tiny small thing of so many different character types of um, strategies that you can use that you use in craft. And when that world opened for me in the classes, I realized that I had I knew nothing and I really wanted to know more. There was a well-known writer who happened to be a parent of one of the kids in my daughter's class, Tony Dorr. He's now a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer that wrote All the Light We Cannot See. Yeah. I wanted to talk to him, <laughs> but I was afraid. He's a dad in your preschool, for crying out loud. <laughs> oh, no. Every day, Kathy, I would sit outside the school after drop-off, waiting for him to come out, trying to get my courage up to talk to him, failing, every single time failing. Finally, I took the wussy way out, and I emailed him and said, <laughs> I'm a student, you know, my daughter, da, da, da. I want to be a writer. I've been taking these classes. I don't know what to do next. Could I just talk to you for five minutes? <laughs> and so he invited me to lunch. And I still remember trying to pick out what to wear. I was paralyzed with fear. And I met him for lunch. I can tell you he had a BLT sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Probably don't remember what you had. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't think I ate because I, I could have just been too scared. And he said to me, you need to go to an MFA program. Don't go locally, go to a low residency program, the best you can get into. And he said, that way you get access to all students from all over the country and teachers come in from all different programs. And, and then you can work from home and go there. So you have this strong ability to carry your work forward in your natural environment. And he said, I teach at Warren Wilson MFA program, but they are so hard. I would not necessarily recommend that. So I went home and applied to Warren Wilson immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't tell him. 
and miraculously got into their program. So a, a, a mutual acquaintance of ours has commented that one of your distinguishing characteristics <laughs> is that you always go after the bigger challenge. So, <laughs> so you don't just ski, you telemark ski. And you don't just scuba dive, you dive with great white sharks and you free dive. And you don't just find a writer's program, you go directly to Warren Wilson. I try. Despite everything you've just said about having to master your fears over and over, I mean, that's a fascinating contrast. It says, yes. it says you, you do find your way to mastering those fears and then you go above and beyond. Oh, I like to think so, but boy, when you know, when I'm in it, it's astonishing how terrified I am. I think, why am I putting myself through this? I'm terrified. I'm terrified I, to even step out of my car. It's amazing the way that fear can cripple people. And I feel like right now I've been working on this elephant book. And of course, it isn't just an elephant book. It has a lot to do with fear and overcoming fear. And I think about kind of what the central idea is, you know, I've been told I need to have this central idea. So I'm working on it. But one of the central ideas is if you want to fix something, you have to act. And I think about even the minutia level of how often are we in situations where we don't like where we are all the time, tr truly many, many times. But how often do we actually act to get ourselves out of that situation? And what does acting look like? And um, I think that, you know, I joke sometimes like <laughs> uh, my husband, my, <laughs> my old best friend, who's now my husband, <laughs> sometimes he'll be like, oh, it's so hot in here. Oh, it's so hot in here. And I look over and he's got like three sweaters on, you know, he's got sweaters yeah, take on a sweater and, off. <laughs> and I'll just look at him and I'll say, I have a bag on my head. I have a bag on my head. <laughs> like, <laughs> just take it off. <laughs> Is he a Jersey Shore acquaintance? He is. You met it. Did you meet in motel era? <laughs> yes. Yes. I wasn't living there then, but I was teaching swimming lessons there for the first year. And so was he. And he gave me all his wimpy swimming lessons. And I, <laughs> but I had a huge crush on him and we were best friends that summer. We, I mean, he was my first real male friend and one of my greatest friends. And then I still have his letters from 1984, which is amazing that I found them. And I didn't know that he had a crush on me, but my whole family knew I had a, a crush on him. And when we, we would see each other periodically throughout our, our young lives and there'd be fast interactions. Like I saw him at a parking lot one day and years after, and we immediately just picked up where we had left off and he told me, you know, he's doing this adventurous thing. And I just remember following his example, even from that one parking lot conversation, thinking, here's a person that thinks outside the box and I want I, and makes those decisions and acts on them. And I want to be like him. So years later, we we're both going through a divorce and we reconnected as friends and immediately picked up and found that friendship again. And and then I think I said one day, you know, I always had a crush on you. And he's like, what? <laughs> I always had a crush on you. And then there it was. So now there it was. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, your, your, your parking lot moment is one of those, I, I call them, I call them momentary mentorships. Oh, gosh, it's, I love you know, it's that. just, it's just a click. It's just a glimpse. It's just a something, but something sticks with you and keeps working inside of you. And it, it can be a vanishingly small moment. Wow. That's a fabulous story. 
So we should probably, you know, true confessions here. I think he's probably confided in you that he and I shared a room once in the Bahamas <laughs> on one of our dive trips. <laughs> Very early on. <laughs> said, you ought to know. How <laughs> There's much been someone you. else. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. He has a crush on you for certain. <laughs> oh, it's, it's a two-way crush. <laughs> so you, you kind of in passing mentioned the elephant book. (laughs) The elephant in the room. But the elephant in the room is this remarkable (laughs) uh, set of adventures you've had. And I I never have heard the whole story of how this adventure started. So talk to me about the elephants. Well, quickly, went to graduate school for writing, started writing fiction, went through a divorce, became the editor of a magazine, started writing nonfiction, then met Dave and started going to the Explorers Club events where I met all these people with incredible stories to tell, scientists and explorers and photographers and filmmakers and some writers. But at the time, mostly I was meeting people who had these amazing stories, but they they weren't actually, they were writing about them in scientific journals or they were finishing their expeditions and they're writing their flag report, but there wasn't really any storytelling that was getting out through to a mainstream audience. And I became very interested in maybe being a bridge for that. And I met a woman at the Explorers Club who was an anthropologist and English was their second language. And she was also a photographer and we decided to do some partnering together. And I started telling other people's stories in their first person voice. So the highlight of that was having an opportunity to write the content for Paul Nicklin's Born to Ice retrospective, which is this massive, beautiful book that I wrote the text for in his voice. And I had taken on many projects like that. And I loved getting in, it was like fiction. I loved getting into the character, but the more it happened, the more it took away something inside of myself that I kept, I would have this yearning that, wait, I want to do something that I could tell the story in my own voice. And one day I was on a hike with a friend of mine who was a National Geographic photographer, and she had just come back from India. And she told me the story of being in a community, a small village along the border of Nepal, where a wall had been put up to keep the elephants out because people were killing them in Nepal and they were more protected by the laws in India. So she was there and the wild elephants would be moving from these little pieces of forest and these crowds would come out each day because they would move at the same time each day and take pictures of them and then selfies. And then they would get closer and closer and start like setting off firecrackers and trying to do more things. And as she's telling the story, I'm thinking, what the, like, that is something. I think that could be a really powerful story because everybody can connect to selfies and the desire to take selfies. And then you could show a problem that's happening in another place with a whole other set of people, but have it be connected because of our universal weird drive for the selfie. What was so what was with the firecrackers? Were they trying to spook the elephants or drive them off? So they'll use firecrackers. Now I know they use firecrackers mostly to try and spook them off out of the out of the fields. Ah. In this particular situation, I think they're trying to use them just to kind of get a rise out of the elephants so that they get a better selfie. Um, ah. so I asked her, would you 
this is another fear point. I'm intimidated by my friend. She is, you know, she's a friend, but you're intimidated. She's a friend, but she's like one of those friends. Like she travels the world. She's famous. She's beautiful. She's young. She's single. She doesn't have kids. Like, so I asked tentatively, would you consider partnering with me? and going together to India and doing this and doing this story. So we start meeting to to talk about like how we could do this project. And and then she said, you know, there's this woman I saw once. She's a, a Maut, one of the only female Mauts in the world, if not the only. And a Mahout is an elephant caregiver trainer in India. They have a a gen, usually it used to be a generational family. It was something that would be passed down from family to family and they would live with elephants and know elephants very intimately. And But this woman, no women are mahouts. So this woman is a mahout and used to capture wild elephants with a lasso when she was young with her father in the forest. And she's also princess. So <laughs> maybe we could find her when we're over there. And of course, like who doesn't want to do that? So, <laughs> so we decide that we're we're going to do this thing. We're going to see the wild elephants, tell that selfie story, and also try and find Parvati Barua and see if we can't do this one story on her as well. So, I usually don't leave my girls if I can help it for more than ten days at a time if I'm traveling for something. And but this trip to India you have to take a long time. Uh, I went for three weeks. I planned for three weeks. So it was a big, big deal. And Jody, my photographer partner, she was going to do a tuk-tuk race across the country before she met up with me. So that was happening. What's a a tuk-tuk race? So the rickshaws or the tuk-tuks that Ah. are driven through India, she was doing an adventure situation with two other people where they decorate these tuk-tuks and they travel across the entire country in these tuk-tuks. So we were going to meet after, which means, of course, and then she's like, bye, I'll see you in India. (laughs) (laughs) And I've never been to India and nor have I ever really traveled by myself to a country such as that I went to Holland once but you know so (laughs) a little more exotic of a place in here (laughs) exactly so I had to you know find all kinds of ways to get myself comfortable enough to take this huge leap and go we got there and it was not wild elephant season And so we couldn't see those elephants and because they migrate with the crops. Also, it proved quite difficult to connect with Parvati because one, she's very elusive. Two, she has a life. She wasn't expecting us. (laughs) And But we had to go through certain, you know, we had to meet all these people that knew her in order to help get a meeting. And lo and behold, she granted us a a 20 minute meeting with her while she happened to be on her family vacation, but we had to drive two and a half hours to get to her, which we did, met with her for 20 minutes. She said, yes, you can spend time with me and tell my story. Come back. You have to come back. (laughs) So Jody was like, great. When do you want us to come back? And I was like, I have to do this twice. (laughs) (laughs) So meanwhile, we went to Darjeeling you know, everything about this project has completely been 
I have come to have this faith that there is literally something guiding this process because there are way too many coincidences or synchronicities or whatever the word is that someone told me the other day is the new word for this, but too many things that just happen. And one of those things was that the weekend that we happened to be in this one area, there was going to be a big stakeholder meeting to discuss the elephant conflict in North India. Everyone was going to be there. It was going to be in Darjeeling and maybe we could get in. It was all government and nonprofits. So we drove there and stood in the hotel waiting for the people to show up to ask in person if we could go. And the last moment, they someone at the highest level let us come in saying we have nothing to hide. And that cracked everything open to me, sitting there and, and seeing how complicated the issue was, how little people know about it in the West, how urgent it is, and how people are dying every day and how elephants are dying and how to me it seemed almost like a metaphor for our own sense of how do we coexist on this planet with one another because we're doing it poorly at every level in so many places and here is a, a place where it's failing rapidly and people are desperately trying to fix it. And so I felt this compulsion that whether poverty would see us or not, I was hooked and I, I kept going back and I eventually ended up having to go back completely alone and did that. And I made friends there who helped me along the way. And I'm eager to go back as soon as everybody is, as soon as the traveling the again, black plague passes through. I mean, so let me be sure I understand this. The <laughs> this is on the you're focusing mainly on the Nepali side of the border or on the India side. On the, the India side. Okay. So focus on in North Bengal. Okay. Assam and an area called Doers, which is like a little section along the border of Bhutan. Okay. So it's along the Nepal border and along the Bhutan border. And the issue is the elephants go out into farmers' fields and are harming the crops, so the farmers want to drive them off or yes, kill them. That, yes. And then and then sometimes the elephants is, is part of it that, that the elephants sometimes stampede or charge at the farmers or charge into villages? You would think that would be the case, but oddly no. The the elephants this last trip I saw in real life, I spent twenty four hours at night riding around on motorcycles, following the farmers and the elephants as they go through the crops. The root cause is that the forests are depleted. And so there's been deforestation, you know, people are cutting down the forest and building and developing, the population's growing, and the food within the forest is disappearing. So that has forced the elephants into the crop fields and also to eat the trees that people plant in their communities. The herds, which used to be like 75, 100 pe people, elephants, mostly female herds, they have now learned how to almost in a military strategy, split themselves up into small groups because they know, one, it's illegal to kill elephants in India. So the farmers aren't going to kill them. They're just going to shoot noise crackers and make a lot of noise and chase after them. So they split themselves up so that they can each take a different little section of the crop area. So that deplete, that reduces the amount of number of forest department staff that can help out. You scatter, and, you scatter the yeah, farmers. Yeah. yeah. 
so so they just eat do, 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 slowly eat and people are like ah! you know going crazy and they're like eating and then they slowly walk away and collect as a group and go hide out in the local tea garden and sleep for the night or in the forest wow and they do this during migration season it's it's it would almost be laughable, but when you're actually out there, it's like a war zone. I mean, I literally felt like I was in a battlefield at night in terms of how people were shooting off these smoke guns and sirens were going off. And But what's been happening for the elephants is they're getting hit by trains, they're getting hit by cars, the tea gardens have fencing that can hurt them, they're falling into trenches that have been built to kind of trap them. So that's happening. And then primarily the bull elephants who maraud sometimes they hang out in the near the villages and they know every person in the village but they come in at night and they will search people's houses so what that looks like is the house gets completely crushed people are inside or people are outside going to the bathroom at night and the elephant will be there with them and pick them up at the trunk and smash them or throw them or kill them or People wow. be taunting them, you know, for a selfie and will get smashed or killed. And so it's a pretty intense situation over there with a lot of lessons to be learned. Wow. Hard to see how to fix that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and and truly, hopefully on the hope side of things, there are several solutions that are starting to be employed that are making a big difference, like rewilding clearing quarters to make a safe passage for elephants, educating villages with children's programs. And, you know, of course, there's never enough funding to fully make that happen. But I'm thrilled that I, I actually just this last weekend, I met with a group that has been helping African elephants and supporting programs for African elephants. And they they asked me if I'd do a presentation for them, you know, this last weekend when I'm on a deadline for the book. So I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I wasn't expecting to, but sure, why not? So they're friends. But anyway, they had seven people come and I took them to my little writer studio where I have all my photographs of all the elephants and all the conflict is storyboarded all over the studio and gave them the presentation. And then they met with me the next next couple days later and said, we'd like to start an Asian elephant branch of the work that we're doing and started in Sun Valley where you live. And would you help us figure out how to make that happen? And I'm pretty thrilled about that, I have to say. <laughs> Your next adventure, that's fabulous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it's, I mean, because a lot of this book is also memoir or personal journey. I, I was joking. I said, I was joking to somebody like, what are, I have a novel that's not finished yet and this book. And I said, yeah, if you ask me what my books are about, my, my novel is about motherhood, guilt, and Chinese adoption. And my, <laughs> and my elephant book is about motherhood, guilt, and elephants along the Himalaya. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they're both about facing risk as well, facing yeah. risk and facing fear. Yeah, yeah. all day long. Yes. So I think I'm starting a pattern. This is all of the <laughs> third interview I've done here of asking people I speak with a common set of questions. I just establish a bit of a through line through such very, really very different life stories. So here are the three things I would like to ask you. These are lightning round, top of mind kind of answers. Just mm. 
as short or as you want or or elaborated. <laughs> What's the bravest thing you've ever done? Oh, <laughs> it's funny because like someone from the outside could look in and say, no, that's the bravest thing you ever did or that's the bravest thing you ever did. But I think that the bravest thing I ever did to date, other than maybe adopting my daughters, <laughs> was the night I spent out with the elephants. And I really wanted to see what was happening with the wild elephants. And I was warned by the woman I was staying with, don't, don't, why do you have to be a cowboy? She said, <laughs> I, I said, well, I, I need to see it. And she said, can't you just like see the aftermath of it? I said, no, I need to see it. And it was the most harrowing experience I've ever had in my life. And I realized as I was standing there, how much I was putting my life at risk. And I felt really awful at so many levels because I, I realized that one, I have children and a family and people who love me. I have to be responsible to, in addition to myself. And I was risking that. And two, I felt ashamed that I was bearing witness to something that was so egregious that I was watching these like hooligans, like chasing after elephants. And these elephants were so vulnerable and, and trying so hard to just survive that bearing witness to that was so horrifying in so many ways that when I look back now, I think that was, that was the bravest thing I've ever done. I really wanted to get that story and see it for myself. And, and I risked a lot. Wow. Is there anything you either, either place you want to go or thing you want to do on a bucket list? Hmm. Boy, there was something actually that I was thinking about recently that I was like, that's on my bucket list. And I don't even have a bucket list. Now I can't remember it at all. <laughs> yeah. If you don't, if you don't have one and can't remember, yeah. you don't have a bucket list. <laughs> I know. I know. I don't have a bucket list I because I think so many things kind of happen. And when the opportunities come up, I say yes. And then then it's like my bucket list. It's like, it doesn't even have time to have a bucket. I, <laughs> I feel wildly fortunate that I feel like I'm right now in my life living my most full life that I never thought actually I'd be capable of living. And I'm not saying I don't want for anything, but I feel like, what is there to see? Let's see what's going to happen next. <laughs> Very cool. Well, this may be just as challenging a question then, but do you have a favorite way to explore? I really love exploring when I have kind of a structure for writing a story about it. It gives me courage. So like that night in the elephants, even though it was, you know, it's my favorite boutique magazine, sidetracked magazine, had said, we'll, we'll run the story. It was like a small, you know, a small story that probably, I, who knows who saw it, but just knowing, like, for example, Dave and I are going on the Titanic in June. In, in a submersible, it should be added. Well, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I probably, well, he's definitely going in the submersible because he's the content expert, but I may have an opportunity or I may not. So I have to mentally prepare just in case, but also mentally be completely understanding if that does not happen. But up until then, I've been thinking, yeah, I'm going, I'm going to go and have this experience. And it's going to be cool. I'm going to get to see this organization that I've really been championing for a long time. But I just connected with Oceanographic, who's another favorite magazine of mine, who is going to do a story about it and I get to write it. So now I have this purpose. And when I have the purpose of being able to write a story, 
I, one, feel more confident. I'm able to like combat seasickness better. <laughs> I'm able to, you know, get on that plane. I feel like my observation, powers of observation are heightened and I can be looking at everything knowing that I'm going to be writing about it. And that thrills me. So for me, exploration is just sweeter and sweeter when I can write about it. Oh, that is fabulous. I love those answers. <laughs> <laughs> you have made some very bold moves in along your journey of life. You know, a number of them were what anyone would say were you know, moves without a net, the motif of working without a net. What is that like for you? What, is, what does that notion mean to you? You know, I've thought a lot about that, actually, because I think about, I think about privilege, I think about talent, and I think about how there are times, I mean, obviously, I there have been times in my life when I've had a safety net, like a financial safety net, where I can self-fund an exploration, or I can... I can feel a little bit less terrified to take a step. And that sense of privilege and safety net is is comforting, but it's also an illusion. The safety net idea is an illusion, I think. But when we have one, or when we think we have something to fall into in case we fail, we can act a little more boldly. We have more confidence. But there have been times in my life when I know that there's not really that thing there. And there are intangible things. Like, for example, when I went through my divorce and I moved out of my home and, you know, my biggest thing in my life was I'm a mom and I adopted these two girls and I've sacrificed a lot for them and for myself to make that work. And there's no net to say that your decision is going to help them in the end and not damage them in the end. It's something, this complete leap of faith that you can't even leap. I mean, it's kind of a crawl of faith. <laughs> it's kind of a, a teeny tiny baby steps of faith, that broken faith that, that come with no net, that there's no guarantee. Even if you have a hypothesis that my children need to see their mother and know that like as a woman, you can have a healthy love in a non-toxic environment that you can reach your dreams and still be a good mom. I had to show that, but there was no safety net that they're, that they would not be damaged or that their love would not stay strong or that even my actions would have any impact on them whatsoever. And so, you know, it's not always just a net of financial safety or confidence. It's, it's these kind of intangible things that hold us back. And, and sometimes we just have to leap without the net or, <laughs> or like, actually the metaphor I use is this. Have you ever, I'm sure Kathy, you've done this many, many times, crossed a river on a log. <laughs> <laughs> and you know how, when you're crossing the river on a log, you're like, I'm going to fall in. You just, I mean, I feel like I'm going to fall in, I'm going to fall in, but Oddly, if I can hold on to even a branch that would not even hold me up if I slipped, I have this psychological ability to walk across confidently or stable and not fall. As soon as I start thinking, I'm going to fall, I'm going to fall, like I'm going to fall. Very interesting, but that is life. <laughs> that, that is indeed life. And and yes, it is, it is stunning how paltry sometimes a little strand of support is that changes your outlook completely. 
Yeah. Gives you that just enough, just enough. to make it across. <laughs> you know, and the reverse is also true. If you can't see that there's an edge. Yeah. There's a famous hike in Norway that goes up from a lakeside across a very narrow little ridge and down again. I've only hiked it once. And the time I hiked it, the clouds were so low that we were, the cloud base was on our, on the ground. And so what we could see was a, a worn down bit of trail that looked like a respectably wide worn down bit of trail. And there were, I'd fallen in with a group of three or four other people were kind of, you know, hiking along as a gaggle. And we were just hiking and merry and kind of wish we'd gotten the view instead of the fog. But you know, lovely walk, all very good. And we, we were all pretty orderly on the trail. You know, we're not 10-year-olds clowning and, and horsing yeah. around. But we get to, we finish and I get to my evening destination of the next little cabin. And they had a picture book of the trails in this area where I was hiking. And I saw a picture of that trail. And if our trail, if, if the worn down bit of our trail was two and a half feet wide or three feet wide, the sheerness of the drop it was not vertical, but I mean, it was a knife edge. I had no sense of walking on it. Oh my God. I had no sense of walking on a knife edge because I couldn't see there was a knife edge there. And it, re it oh reminded me of being a kid who's never encountered wow. a knife edge before. And so you're just gaily yeah. hopping along, having a good old time. And the adults are all going, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. There. Yes. <laughs> There's an edge Gee, right there. Oh my god! And if, you know, if the fog had lifted, for all I know, we would have dropped to all fours. <laughs> what? Seriously, that is such an amazing image because it is so true. I really wish I could walk through life with the fog there <laughs> <laughs> because that no, I feel like I see that knife edge everywhere I go I mean I you know but wow that is so it but it is exactly you're right it's exactly the same thing you could just walk along and we do have that as children and we lose it we do we lose it or we try our lives to gain it some people never lose it though I don't know. Are you a person who's ever lost it? I don't think you've lost it as much as some of us. <laughs> Obviously, you could have never done what you've done. Well, it's and it varies. I think the way it works on you varies a lot depending what kind of risk it is. So if it's a physical risk that you can maybe find a branch or find a walking stick to help you stabilize, that's one thing. If it's the risk you were feeling out in the forest of not knowing how this turns out and what about my children or, you know, the risk you felt as, as you unwound your marriage, because best as you could tell, that was the better right thing for you and your girls, but it ain't guaranteed. And nope. your choices are either just, you know, sit still and do nothing or act. As you said, Kim, this has been so great. The next oh time God. we're together on awesome. a sea space trip, we're going off in the corner and continuing this conversation. Definitely. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> That's on my bucket list. That is definitely on my bucket list. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kathy. This has been amazing. Thank it's you. It's just been a ball. Love it to oh death. Give himself a big hug for me. I will. I will. Absolutely. I'm honored and flabbergasted that you chose me. Oh, so no, your stories are absolutely <laughs> fascinating. And your way of, of looking at the world and thinking about life is just, it's dazzling. You're, you're fabulous. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, Along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com.
This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.